So Lisa, I am very excited when we get listener engagement, when they send us an email, a DM, if they comment on some of our social media. And so we have some good, good, good questions um, from Heather. I am super excited. We have some questions from Heather. So I think we should uh, address some of those. All right. I think we should too. We would love to hear from more of you. So um, I am expectant and waiting with bated breath to hear the question. Ooh, let's dive in. I'm Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, and I go by she, her, her pronouns. And I'm Dr. Lisa Ingefield, and I go by she, her, hers. Welcome to Unfazed, a podcast to disrupt your normal and challenge your brain to go the distance. So Lisa, we have a fantastic question or a couple of questions um, in regards to a previous podcast that we did. Um, Of course, a lot of folks really uh, got into the podcast that we did on DEI committees, particularly. Uh, We kind of tried to lay that out as far as what works, what doesn't work with DEI committees. And so what's really interesting is that Heather had some follow-up questions in regards to that pod. So let me read you the question. And then we can kind of dive into some of it. So Heather sends us a note and says, hello, I love your podcast. The other day I was thinking I'd love to hear one on diversity committees and lo and behold, you already did one a few weeks ago. I had some further questions that I don't know would make another podcast or not, but I thought I'd throw it out there as a listener. And so she asks a couple of questions. What do you do when there isn't support to hire an expert? That's a good question (laughs) because Mm -hmm. that usually ends up being, uh, I I hate to sound so negative, but that does end up being an excuse or at least a really strong reason why people choose not to go out and hire an expert. And as we know, um, I think it's been happening beforehand, but it really was highlighted in 2020 that a lot of the experts in this area are from minoritized uh, groups and identities, social identities. And so they've been very staunch, myself included, that we will not devalue ourselves. So yes, you're going to have to pay a decent amount to get the expertise. And so I can understand the other side of that. I'm a small organization. I'm a small business. I don't have, you know, three, four zeros to write a check for you. So what should we do in lieu of that? And so I'm just throwing that out to you, Lisa. What do you think people should do if they can't hire an expert for whatever reasons, whether it's the math or the money? What, what can they do? There, there have to be some options there. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I think the motivation about, um, you know, when there isn't support to hire an expert. So is that that they feel they cannot hire an expert because of resources or because or that they won't hire an expert? Right. I think Ooh, some, yes. perhaps some scheming with your group of allies around what do you think the reason is? Because if it's um, the organization feels they can't because of resources, you know, there's a couple of things there. Um, We know where we put our money also illuminates our priorities. And there are a number of things that organizations Mm. are required to do by law, right? That they have to put their money into um, 
And so framing, you know, hiring a diversity and inclusion consultant in that way might be helpful, or maybe there's another pot of money or another funding stream that would enable you to bring in an expert, or maybe there's a local nonprofit that does this work and it's less expensive. That feels like a different issue to me than um, an organization's leadership team that won't hire an expert. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You know, and the, the won't could mm-hmm. be they don't think they need it. They're scared to hire a DEI expert because mm-hmm. of what it might uncover. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, they're yeah. resistant for another reason. And I think that would be an important first question to understand. Um, mm-hmm. in terms mm-hmm. of how you move forward from that place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've got me thinking now on the converse of that, I, I get that just the mere notion of hiring an expert is a statement, right? And it's a statement that organizations may or may not be comfortable with right, defending right. or responding to. Um, so prioritizing things may be one thing, but then, you know, on the flip side of that same coin, you also don't want that performative person hired where I'm hiring this person to think about process, do the DEI work, but we're going to limit them. They're only here as a figurehead to make it look as if we're hip and on the cutting edge of DEI topics, but they really don't have any power or budget Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. other human resources to support them in their efforts. So I'm, I'm okay with kind of overthinking a little bit hiring a DEI expert if you're if you know that the organization is going to uh, disempower them (laughs) so how can you create an environment that will empower them in reverse so I'm just Mm -hmm. kind of thinking Mm -hmm. of all sides of of the hiring process there Um, and yeah I think too we need to think about the business case and I I've been going through this a lot with people that I've been talking to around the case for DEI in the organization. And most folks who have not been in this work as long as we have come from a standpoint of it's the right thing to do. And I want you to do it because it's the right thing to do, the altruistic approach. And as much as I would ideally love to think that is the case, that simply is not the case for a lot of people, especially those that don't have proximity to the issues. So it kind of reminds me, Lisa, of you know that dad that doesn't care about Uh, gender equality until they have 17 girls, you know, I'm exaggerating here, but you know what I mean, where it doesn't matter to them until it directly affects someone they love. There will always be people like that. Like I personally did not think about neurodiversity until it directly affected my oldest son. I didn't think about it as much. It was on my radar, but I wasn't deep into it and the way I am now. And so given that, you know, we really have to think through all the different ways in which you make the case for needing a DEI expert that go beyond the altruistic to say, wait a minute, we are losing X number of dollars each year in human resources because people of color, LGBT individuals, women come into this organization and they turn around and leave within an average of two years after we've poured tons of money into training them because of XYZ reasons. Some people will only respond to that type of business case. And I, as much as I would like the altruistic approach, I'm willing to start wherever the person is, as long as we get the work done. And right, so I think the, right. the various business cases, and you can probably think of other business cases as well, but there are business cases to why an expert is needed um, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. goes beyond the folks that you have already in the organization. Well, yeah. And if your organization is a predominantly white male organization, as many endurance sports organizations are, um, 
you know, I think it isn't very smart of you to think that if you have a group of people working on a product that all look the same, think the same, have very similar experiences, then the product itself is only going to reach or resonate with individuals who look like the people who created it, right, and market it. So mm-hmm. there is an enormous untapped market um, available for companies, uh, you know, if they actually take seriously this need for diversity and inclusion, one piece of which is diversifying your staff, right? Because if you have more people at the mm. table who think differently, have different backgrounds, um, different experiences, different ideas, then I think it's pretty obvious that what will follow will be a product um, that is more appealing to a broader audience, right? I, I think that's a very simple business yep. case to make. And I'm pretty sure there's like a boatload of data out there to back that up, right? Yeah. I mean, yep. you think about yep. where you put Absolutely. your money, um, you know, there's a, you know, a push nationally to buy local, right? To support small businesses, mm. small local businesses. So yeah, that's a, um, yeah. that's a value, I guess, right? In terms of doing that. And then my value of buying mm. from women owned businesses, right? But that's because I also yes. see myself reflected in those business owners. So similarly, right. if I don't see myself reflected in the staff of an endurance sport organization, I'm probably not going to put mm. my money there. I'm going to go elsewhere, right? So if you want to cast the net wider, like it seems pretty, I mean, I'm not a business major. I don't have an MBA, but I feel like that seems fairly obvious. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. So it's like, you know, if you are only speaking to, you know, less than half of the market, you can't be frustrated or upset that you are going out of business or losing business because you're ignoring 50% or more of the folks that would uh, patronize you had they known that you were welcoming to those audiences. So, you know, that, that takes the work of not thinking from a lens of build it and they will come. It's no tailor it and structure it and they will come structure it in a way that's inclusive to everyone rather than the way you would like to, uh, consume or experience that particular event product, you know, experience. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really crucial too. Yeah, I love so now that. The, the second question. Yeah. No, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, I love, I feel like you just like did a whole, um, another catchphrase, maybe like, like the white spreading and something, <laughs> something else we had come up with is the structure. What did you, I forget now what you mm-hmm. said. Instead of build, instead of build it and they will come, you said structure it and something and they will come. And I feel like. Structure think, it and tailor it. Tailor it. That was it. Structure it and tailor it. And yeah. Structure it and tailor it. Yes. It's kind of a little bit like the golden mm-hmm. rule, right? We always talk about the golden rule, treat others as you would like to be treated. Oh, that's yes. quite self-centered, isn't it? It's actually, yes. the, then there's this thing called the that's right. rule, which is actually treat people how they, they want to be treated, right? Don't assume that your choices and interests and desires are the same as other people. And kind of the way you just reframed that famous phrase made me think of that. Yeah. So I just wanted to put a pin in that Yeah, yeah. because I think that was really good. Well, you know, thank you for reminding me of what I said, because once again, listeners, beloved listeners, more proof that this is not scripted. Okay. (laughs) We literally build all of these podcasts as we are flying the plane. And so you never know what you're going to get out of us from week to week. Let's just be clear on that. 
Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, you know, it's just like, you know, we see this in endurance sport often where, you know, we encourage people, you don't just go in there and hop on a bike and pay for it and ride out, get fitted for the bike, find out which one specifically meets your needs. I think that that's where, you know, we go left on a lot of things around hiring a, a DEI expert. Well, what organizations have been used to doing is simply building building a bike and you come in and ride it, no matter how uncomfortable it is, you get what you get. And that's inherently the problem that loses more than half of an entire market who's saying, no, I don't want to just ride what you built and what's in the store. I want you to customize what I need that will be most comfortable to get me to my goal. And we don't do that. We don't customize. We just, you know, they're widgets. You know, it's just everybody gets the same thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Of course you're going to lose. And, and the same thing is based on the model of whiteness and maleness. Yeah. The yeah. white male version of everything is what everyone gets. And then we wonder why more people outside of the white and male demographics don't come to endurance sport. It yeah. wasn't built for us. Right. Was Yeah. Their experience is presumed to be universal. Yeah. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. So, well, now Heather goes on to ask a second question, which is, what can you really expect a diversity committee to accomplish? And that's a damn good question because yep. my, my repetitive refrain when I'm working with organizations that are excited about building a DEI committee, a DEI council, et cetera, my first thing comes from my background in project management, write a charter meaning write down exactly what you say you are going to accomplish. But the second piece that I didn't learn in project management that I had to make clear when it comes to boundaries, make sure you're very clear in that charter of what you're not going to do. This is not your area. This is not your lane. I'm not going to handle this. Um, A lot of kind of HR stuff kind of trickles into DEI counsel sometimes because humans are inherently diverse. And so therefore it overlaps quite a bit. Um, and so I think it's really important to be like, look, we're not going to be the, we're not going to be everything to everybody um, when it comes to this work. So, you know, I think setting folks up for failure is a challenge when it comes to the DEI council, because people within an organization think, oh, well, look, anything that comes up DEI, I'm going to throw to the council. And it's like, no, we have to be more precise when it comes to what they're going to handle mm-hmm. and what they're not mm-hmm. going to handle. Yeah. So I think that's like the first step of it's almost like creating that frame around the puzzle before you start building it in. This is what we are going to do. And this is what we're not going to do. Absolutely not going to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that what goes hand in hand with that then is being real, you know, being to have this question, being realistic about what the diversity committee can accomplish and that can get written out in a, Mm -hmm. in the charter. And so I think that there's, um, a lack, perhaps a lack of understanding and or a um, energy that mm-hmm. um, creates um, unmeetable goals for diversity <laughs> committees, right? Um, I love that. Unmeetable. Unmeetable. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's not a word. But in terms of, <laughs> you know, like setting those expectations so high, the diversity committee fails, which to your point is setting them up for failure, but it's not necessarily malicious or intentional. It's like, you know, giving the diversity committee the kitchen sink. So 
um, in terms of accomplishments, I think you do have to be very strategic and thoughtful when you're setting up that council or committee about what is it that they can do, the time in which they have to do it and their level of mm-hmm. authority around, you know, mm-hmm. what they can affect in terms of changes because you don't want to say diversity committee, you know, make our organization inclusive and here's four weeks to do it. Like that's too <laughs> nebulous. Right. 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 And it's like far right. too quick of a timeline when we know how slowly these things move. So I think that mm-hmm. to add on to your charter piece, that in terms mm-hmm. of those expectations and accomplishments, you have to be re- you have to be realistic, and to be realistic, you have to understand the problem. So then that brings me back to data collection. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Well, and you know, here's the thing too. Going back to what you mentioned of you know telling a, a diversity committee, hey, you got four weeks to do X, Y, Z. Well, who tells the DEI committee what they can and cannot do, and how do they interact with this committee, right? So for example, I, I've, I've seen faces deflate when I tell DEI committees or councils, no, you are not the end-all be-all decision maker on this particular DEI issue. However, your role is to advise those that don't have the knowledge or even the best practices across the country around this particular topic you heavily advise a decision maker, but you are not the decision maker. And how to keep that line of communication open between the committee and the true authoritative figure in the organization. I think that's really crucial um, to setting expectations. So for example, you can have a really awesome uh, diversity committee, but if they're reporting to senior leadership, that's a bottleneck, well, you don't want to set yourself up for failure. Be very aware. I think we talked about this in the chess episode around um, knowing where the resistance will happen. Know where right. there's going to be champions, right. but also know where they're going to be problematic folks. So yeah, definitely be clear on you know what that looks like and how much authority you really do have versus what you don't have. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I think part of... Um... Part of this is also a conversation around uh, are you a diversity committee in name only, <laughs> right? And, and this, you know, taps in yes. what we talked about before. If you mm-hmm. have zero power mm-hmm. to make any change, then having any expectations that you can accomplish anything meaningful is is a problem. And so right. there needs to That's be right. some voices and allies on that committee who can have those pretty difficult conversations with the leadership, I think, in terms mm-hmm. of you know, we, you have us as a figurehead, right? But nothing's actually changing. Um, And then the risk of those conversations varies depending on who you are and where you are in the organization, obviously. And so that's an individual choice. But Mm -hmm. um, I think that that's an important thing to consider when you think about expectations and accomplishments. Um, Some tangible things I would say it's realistic is reviewing policies and making recommendations Mm -hmm. to change policies that are more inclusive, Um, surveying your organization, trying to get a kind of a pulse on the culture of the organization and where some of those pieces might be broken. And then you could Mm -hmm. also develop an inclusivity statement that could go on the website, right? That could get Mm -hmm. integrated into HR policies. Um, Does your organization have a non-discrimination statement and Mm. process? I mean, I'd like to think they all do, but I'm pretty, I bet some of those smaller organizations don't have that. Right, exactly. They don't. And so that would be a great place for the diversity committee to do kind of a a first pass at looking at comparable organizations um, that already have a statement and 
you know, borrow some language that works. Or if there's language that doesn't work, you know, make sure it's not in your statement. So I think that would be great too. Um, and going back to your point around data collection and how to keep your finger on the pulse of the organization, you know, yes, very strong data collection, surveys, interviews, and so forth, but also ongoing holding spaces for folks to always have some type of communication and outlet with individuals who are already, um, forgive me here, I go again with my ableist language, something different from having an ear to hear DEI, having a sensitivity, there we go, having a sensitivity to DEI uh, experiences and constructs so that they can constantly have a holding space as things arise. Because yeah. for example, let's say you collect data twice a year. Well, some people have some relatively urgent topics that can't wait until you're doing the survey. And so how do you keep this consistent holding space? I, I think that could be something that could be accomplished uh, given that you're building trust yeah. uh, between the committee and others. Especially if your committee is a long-term committee, right? Which also comes yes. back to your, your charter point. Is that probably the time frame of the committee? How long is are you going to be in existence um, is probably a piece of that. Right. But you can't right. in perpetuity have a diversity committee. Um, mm-hmm. Because I think that that handcuffs you as a committee, like, well, you'll just be around forever, right? And then it loses steam. I mean, I think we've already commented on this, but, you know, last year there was like a huge push around anti-racism and doing more around racial injustice, you know, and it was a big push for quite a long time. And then there were people saying, is this a diff- Is this different? Is it going to last? Is it going to last? And I think that, you know, we could probably say that it hasn't really lasted in a way that we would like. And so I think any kind of long-term mm-hmm. project without a structure, without support from leadership fizzles. Well, and so here's the, the last piece of the puzzle then for me is once you have this committee together, once you have this, uh, you know, this functioning DEI committee, I'm going to add a third question to Heather's first two, because Heather's already taken us uh, down this path of, you know, what do you do when you can't hire an expert? What can you really expect a diversity committee to actually do? My question goes to the next level beyond the diversity committee. When do you know or when is it the right time to move beyond the committee to an expert or to a consultant, right? Even let's say the most ideal situation, at some point that committee needs to function differently or that committee gets to the edge of their experience or understanding of DEI because they've been hired to do other things other than diversity. You know, you might have the IT person that sits on the diversity committee or, you know, the HR person or whoever is sitting on that committee, then what do we do when we get to the limits of their expertise? Uh, we, we have to have a way to turn the corner to move beyond the committee to the consultant. And my hope is that the committee has somewhat bought the organization some time in order to get a few pennies together so that they can hire a consultant. It's almost like, I don't want to say it's completely a stop gap, but it is a bridge to a next level of DEI work within the organization. Yeah, and I think that kind of it, it dovetails a little bit with Heather's first question about what do you do when there isn't support to hire an expert? Because you could um, have a diversity committee that goes as far as it can go, and then you say, really, to take us to the next level, we need an external voice, right? And you hit a roadblock um, because the leadership was quite yes. happy with the do to do of the diversity committee that was right. uh, really just in name only and wasn't really getting right. anywhere. 
I mean, if you're finding that your committee is constantly running into roadblocks or comments that people are saying or advice advice that is being given is being ignored or not enacted, that would be a sign mm-hmm. to me that you need an external voice because those external voices often can carry a lot more weight. I mean, I've definitely seen that around um, gendered violence in the college campus space where advocates on campus, you know, have mm-hmm. been banging the drama around Title IX and all those pieces for years and then strategically bring in consultants who have expertise in the area because leadership will listen to the consultant. Yes. They won't yes, listen to yes, the people yes. who are on campus saying the exact same things. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so I think mm-hmm. that's, that's a sign if you're, if you feel like the, everywhere you turn, there's a wall. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a great point. And you know, the, the other piece that I've seen, even in very, um, very astute and thriving organizations is that they are no longer, and, and I told Lisa earlier, I need to find some more language that's not gendered around this, but the stereotypical mom and pop organization. So let's just go with small. The small organization that was kind of homegrown that is now turning this corner to a larger organization where they may be medium to larger size and they want to keep this culture of being small and close-knit and even family-oriented in some ways, but the size of the organization necessitates someone that has a larger 30,000-foot view of diversity, inclusion, equity, belonging. And so I think even the size of the organization, um, so if I have a, and I'm not saying this is an ideal number, I'm just saying this is where I've had experience, but if I have a DI committee that's five to seven people out of an organization of 50 versus five to seven people out of an organization of 500, this is now a different conversation with different needs. Um, And so that's why folks like Lisa and I who do consulting work, we ask Mm -hmm. very specific questions about what type of organization is, what's the size, what's the age of the organization, um, has it grown in the last couple of years or has it been growing uh, relatively strategically? We have questions when it comes to size because that determines the far reaching need. Um, Because again, these folks on the committee are doing this in their quote unquote extra time if they even have any. Um, They're they're not getting paid for this most likely. Um, And so you may be at a size where you need someone to do this full-time work because the organization has grown to that. Yeah, because those those issues, uh, you know, are complicated, the more people that you have. I mean, the, you might encounter new and different issues, but the issues that you might have as a 25 person organization will be magnified when you have 250 people in your organization. Um, you know, so I think that there has to be some humility there around at what point uh are these issues perhaps too complex and complicated for an internal committee to handle? And that would really might be helpful for us to go on a journey with an external voice um, yes. around this. Someone who, you know, we always, you know, you talk about when you start a new job that that's one of the most important times because you see an organization for what it is because you've not been, um, you know, sucked into the culture of the organization. So you're better able to make Um, objective Mm. uh, comments or observations about structure processes that sort of thing right and after a certain period of time Mm -hmm. you stop to you're unable to identify those things in the same way and so I think that that is also true when we're for an outside consultant or whatever the issue is right they're coming in with no history in the organization perhaps a history in the industry but not in the specific organization 
And so they Mm -hmm. are able to see things or pinpoint things or identify things that internal stakeholders cannot do because of the length of time that they have been in the organization. And I think that's Mm -hmm. a really important piece. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Without having those ties or even the the quote unquote politics um, that one could bring within the organization. You know, and I think the, you know, what I find so interesting about turning that corner is that at some point there has to be prioritization. I don't know about you, Lisa, but I've seen a lot of organizations that had the structure in a really weird place where DEI was an addendum to their work rather than being the central hub to their work. And so therefore they treated the budget the very same way. It's kind of like, if we have something left, we'll throw it at diversity rather than the budget a central chunk of the budget being towards DEI that then creates a broader trickle effect out into other aspects of the organization. And so, you know, that's when I think that that's when I'm pretty clear that an organization is serious about DEI work is when they start to make it central in every way, protocols, policies, procedures, budgets are my four favorites. Once they become central, then I feel like, okay, now we're, we're, I have an inkling that we may be pushing beyond performative and just putting on on a stage to make people think that we are, that we care about diversity versus actually caring about diversity. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think, you know, I think, you know, you and I are um, sometimes fans of the diversity committee, sometimes not. And I think we, you know, explained pitfalls in our last podcast, but these additional questions that Heather raised are Mm -hmm. ongoing. And I think really important, um, the resistance to hiring the expert, that first question that you posed, Heather, I think is, is such a difficult question in many ways to answer because it's sometimes insurmountable, right? It's sometimes very challenging to get past that. And this is why people leave organizations. So at some point, I guess I would say to folks, if you find yourself in a situation where there are clear problems around behavior, attitude, skills, knowledge, marginalization, and um, it's clear that your little band of diversity um, warriors um, are not (laughs) being heard or are not being effective, but that next step isn't viable for whatever reason, you know, you have to have a conversation with yourself about what does it mean for you in terms of your stress and your happiness to stay in an organization that doesn't really value um, making meaningful change in diversity, equity, and inclusion. I mean, that would be the extension Mm -hmm. of that resistance you might get around hiring someone, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I think you've... uh, You've taken us into a topic that deserves its own podcast about continuing on with resistance and all the different ways it shows up. But I think you're right. You know, for those that are sitting on that DEI committee, that may be very clear that, okay, we've we've done as much as we can do here. And what does resistance look like for those folks that have already given a lot of time, energy, effort to the work and having a very smooth baton handoff? to a professional that can do the work. And if there's pushback, what's your next step as someone who considers yourself an ally of the work and a champion of the work? Is your next step resistance and to what degree? 
is a huge question that's a personal one that everyone has to consider for themselves um, if they so choose to be on such a committee. So yeah, that's, I think that's another podcast, Lisa. <laughs> oh, add it to the list. Add it to the list. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So thank you, Heather, for asking such important questions. Um, we're always looking to build upon uh, what we've already talked about because it changes and grows and our, our perspectives may even change from podcast to podcast. So thank you for asking those questions. Continue to listen. Um, hopefully share this particular podcast with folks that you know who are thinking about building a DEI committee or maybe they have one and it's not functioning at its best level. I think a lot of folks could really use this information as they think. And so, Lisa, I don't think we gave them any clear answers at all. I just think we gave them really good stuff right. to think about and stew mm-hmm. on, yes. um, which, is, which is what we like to do. <laughs> the Unfazed Podcasts and all things Feisty Triathlon are grateful to be supported by Inside Tracker. Inside Tracker cuts through the noise of diet and wellness trends by analyzing your blood, DNA, and lifestyle to provide you a personalized, science-backed, trackable action plan on how to live, age, and perform better. Inside Tracker is a simpler, cheaper, and more convenient option than traditional blood tests, and their tests include biomarkers that are key to performance that you don't get from the traditional option. What we love about them? They don't just give you data. They provide you with nutrition and lifestyle tips to take action. Inside Tracker is offering 25% off their entire store to the Feisty Triathlon community. To claim your offer, go to insidetracker.com slash feistytriathlon. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Lisa Ringerfield, co-founder of the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. We are really excited to announce that the Outspoken Summit will be returning in 2021. This year has created an opportunity for triathletes to get back in the blocks and start to rebuild triathlon to create a more inclusive and welcoming space for all. Join us from the 12th to the 14th of November as we host a virtual summit to connect with like-minded women, center women's equity in the sport, hear from industry leaders, and develop leadership skills related to our roles in triathlon. The summit will provide a rich forum to develop strong voices, inspire others, and advocate for change in the sport we love. For more information and to sign up for the event, go to OutspokenSummit.com. We hope to see you there. Unfazed, a podcast produced by Live Feisty Media and supported by the Outspoken Women in Triathlon Summit. Edited and produced by the fabulous Lindsay Glassford. Email us at info at unfazedpodcast.com and find us on social at try to defy at Dr. Gold Speaks or at Outspoken Women in Try. I'm Lisa. I'm Shauna. Thanks for listening. Stay unfazed, folks. See you next time.